haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church, and I have, uh, I think, I know, a really important message to share today. feel a very heavy sense of responsibility about it. I hope that you will hear me, receive me, and um, uh, the words that I share from Scripture and uh, I hope that this is a really a significant step in our continued life together. So the Rwandan genocide, which took place in 1994, is one of the most horrific mass murders in human history. As most of you will remember, the majority Hutus massacred some 800,000 minority Tutsis in just four months. The Rwandan genocide is evidence of the evil humanity is capable of and was one of the most tragic moral catastrophes in history. And then one of the most hopeful stories in history is the reconciliation that has taken place in Rwanda since the end of its civil war, which was the larger context of the genocide. I've had the privilege to travel and speak to Christian leaders in Rwanda on two occasions. On my first trip there, I developed a relationship with Nathan Gossatura, an Ang Anglican priest. At that time, he was the president of the AIDS Commission in Rwanda, uh, uh, represented the government uh, in terms of their battle against the AIDS pandemic, which was then raging throughout Africa. And the Life Christian Church got involved in serving people in Rwanda who had been affected and victimized by the AIDS pandemic. Later, Nathan was promoted to bishop, and he invited me back to speak to leaders in various churches, including his gorgeous cathedral, throughout his diocese. This week I was thinking again about being in a little village in Rwanda, which felt like it was in the middle of nowhere. Most of the people who came to hear me speak traveled great distances by foot. Some of them had never seen a white man before. And with me, of course, they saw a very, very white man. And crowds of kids would gather around and they'd point at me. I think the, the word they used was mazunga. It meant White man, we've never seen that before. Anyway, after a day of teaching, we ate dinner in the pastor's little two-room block wall, dirt floor, tin roof house. There were about 30 of us packed in there. We all washed our hands from one bucket. Thankfully, they insisted that I go first. We drank warm milk from the cow we could hear mooing just outside the open window. They uh, prepared the food in an open fire in the yard and then set it out for us. And when they did, it, it happened the, that the food was covered with a horde of flies. And we, Sharon and Christian, were with me. You'll see a picture of Christian. He had just uh, graduated from high school, and this was part of his gift was to get to come and listen to me speak in Africa all day long uh, for a week. Um, anyway, pray for him. We, we of course, <laughs> received their hospitality joyfully. Beautiful people who were so gracious and generous and just wonderful. I confess, however, that I'm a bit of a germaphobe, and I was really proud of myself for eating everything that was served to me, fly-infested and all. And then later I found out who I really should have been proud of and am proud of. Because after we left that day, I learned that Bishop Gossatura was the only Tutsi in a room full of Hutus. 
And I knew that he had family members who had been killed by the Hutus in the genocide. I found out that his staff was concerned about him being in that remote Hutu village. But that day I watched him feasting with Hutu pastors and leaders as if being with them was the most wonderful thing he had ever experienced in his life. On one hand, he was a hero in that moment. On the other hand, he was simply acting like a follower of Jesus is supposed to act with people who used to be enemies, but who are now a part of the same Christian family. I think one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture is where the Apostle Paul wrote this to the Ephesians. He wrote, Now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's writing to Gentiles who had previously been kept outside of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and Abraham's seed. And he's saying, Now you have been brought into this covenant by the blood of Jesus, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jew and Gentile, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, Jew and Gentile, making them, thus making peace. His purpose was to take Jew and Gentile and to make them one new humanity and to make peace. It's hard for us to imagine the um, just uh, volatile animus that existed between Jew and Gentile in the first century that has been reflected through much of history, actually. William Barclay writes that the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. I want you to get a picture of what it meant that Jew and Gentile have now been brought together to sit at the table together and to consider themselves as one in Christ. So, you know, not only did the Jew hate the Gentile, but we've seen terrible hatred from Gentile to Jew most recently manifest in, in the horrific reality of the Holocaust. This, this, this animosity, though, Paul said, has been done away with in Jesus because he tore down the dividing wall of hostility. And part of Paul's idea expressed here in Ephesians and throughout his writings was that if Jew and Gentile could be truly reconciled to one another, then any two groups of people or any two people can be reconciled to one another. And Paul's goal was true reconciliation, friendship, fellowship, community, doing life together, fulfilling mission together, Jesus didn't just tear down dividing walls of hostility. He created one new humanity. This is why Jew and Gentile can become one in Jesus Christ. This is why Hutus and Tutsis, as difficult it is to imagine, can become one in Jesus Christ. Last week, we focused on what Paul wrote to the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. He said, here in the Colossian church, there is no Gentile or Jew, 
circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. We've taught in recent weeks that to this point in Paul's letter to the Colossians, he has written that because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done through his life, death, resurrection, and exaltation, that we've been brought into a new reality called the church. And in the church, we are to put off our old identity, Jew, Gentile, however you may identify yourself, and that we are to find our primary identity in Christ. There is no Jew or Gentile. There is no this or that, because we are all one in Jesus Christ. Christ, Paul said, is all. When you get that picture in your mind, you start realizing how petty so many of our differences are when Christ is all and is in all. So he said there's no Jew or Gentile. We've already talked about that. Jew and Gentile are now sitting together in the fellowship in, in Colossae. He also said there's no circumcised or uncircumcised, a strange thing to talk about in today's world, but it was a big deal back in uh, throughout the history of Scripture. Um, there were, as I've taught at length, some people who were calling Jewish mystics who had infiltrated the church in Colossae who were teaching that in order for a, uh, for a Gentile to be a part of the Christian church, not only should they believe in Jesus and be baptized, but they also must be circumcised as God had commanded Abraham and his, and, and his children to be circumcised. And Paul said that now has been taken care of through Jesus Christ. And the, the, the only requirement for being a part of Jesus is faith in Jesus and being baptized. And now you're a part of his body. So there's no circumcised or uncircumcised. And then, then he said there's no barbarian or Scythian. I talked about this last week. I'll briefly remind you that barbarians was a common slur by the Greeks. For those who didn't speak Greek, the term could also be translated foreigner or other. Paul said there are no others in the body of Christ. Then he mentioned Scythians. Scythians are marked in Greek poetry like the barbarians are. The term is a stereotype. The term describes people who were living north of the Black Sea, modern southern Russia, and is associated with savagery. One uh, author said that, that in the first century, the Scythians were considered to be the most barbaric of the barbarians. But Paul said, if someone's believed in Jesus, they're no longer or a barbarian or Scythian, they are a brother or sister in Christ. And then he mentions slavers free, an absolutely revolutionary concept at that time, never known before in history. We're sitting at the same table, are slave and free. I'm going to teach about this at more length here in a couple of weeks in this context, but it's a it's an amazing thing that sitting at the table is, 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 is in the Colossian church is a slave who'd run away from his, his, his master who'd come to Christ and now brought this letter actually back to the Colossian church and he's sitting at the same table with the person he ran away from and Paul said we're not identifying anymore slave or free because Christ is all and in all we we our identities have changed and we don't see each other in these ways which brings me to our reality today if we're followers of Jesus if we understand who he is and what he has done, and if we love the new community he's created called the church, then we must say with Paul, here there is no Jew or Gentile, there is no black or white, 
There is no Asian or Latino. There is no Singaporean or American. There is no Democrat or Republican or Libertarian. Throw the Libertarians in this week. There is no Baptist or Lutheran or Pentecostal. For we are all one in Christ. Christ is all and in all. Now, this doesn't mean that, 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 that we shouldn't joyfully celebrate our race or ethnicity or nation of origin or so on. I am grateful, for instance, to be an American. It's an important part of my identity. It's just not my primary identity. I am a part of kingdom, a kingdom that will go on forever. And my first loyalty is I am a citizen of heaven. Uh, the apostle Paul didn't quit considering himself Jewish. He was Jewish. He continued to follow Jewish traditions. He wasn't saying that, that, that your identity as a black person or a white person or your political party or whatever. He wasn't saying this is unimportant. He's saying it's not primary. It's not the most important thing. When we come together in Christ, we become a part of one new humanity. And it's like Paul was saying, when you really understand who Jesus is and what he did, as we've talked about in recent weeks at length, as we've taught through Colossians, when you get this whole idea of who Jesus is, then all of a sudden it becomes so much more important than all the things that divide us in this world. So... Thank you for one clap. It was very, very nice. After months of preaching to a camera, I'll take the one clap. Uh, But trust me, it's about to get quiet here because now I want to restate three very important values that have helped us grow a wonderfully diverse and wonderfully unified church here at TLCC over the past 29 years. We celebrate 29 years together. We have been called by some one of the most diverse churches in the world. Um, It is a beautiful thing. It also can at times be challenging to um, come together around the table, having come from so many different places and uh, experiences and so on, and one of the things that I try to do every once in a while is remind us about some of the things that help us to find unity in so much diversity. So I'm going to mention a couple of things I've taught about 496 times. I actually haven't been counting, but a lot. And But I'm going to go a little deeper into some of this than I have in the past. And to get really specific about some things today that I feel responsible to talk about. Frankly, not looking forward to preaching today. Um, I feel a responsibility to talk about some things as your pastor that I think will help us to become more deeply, truly unified than ever before. And um, uh, so, and then I'm going to close by digging back into Colossians and, and helping you understand why what I'm discussing today is in the context of what we've been teaching about over recent weeks, okay? Here's the first value that helps us practice unity and diversity here at the Life Christian Church. It's this one. We love to love people who are strange to us. Hebrews 13, 1 and 2, one of our key passages here. We come back to it repeatedly. I've written a huge section of my last book based on this scripture. Hebrews 13, 1 and 2. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. 
Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So first of all, we're told to keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. The Greek word translated uh, love brothers and sisters is the word Philadelphia. We're, that's one Greek word we all know the definition of, right? Philadelphia is about brotherly love. So he says, first of all, practice Philadelphia. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. But then he goes further when he says, and do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. The Greek word translated um, hospitality to strangers, or uh, in some translations, entertain strangers, or in some translations, welcome strangers. The Greek word translated uh, uh, show hospitality to strangers here is the Greek word philoxenia. Philoxenia is the opposite of xenophobia. Literally, it's the opposite. It's the antonym of xenophobia. Xenophobia is an irrational, illogical fear of people who are not like you. And so Paul says, not only do you keep loving each other's brothers and sisters, but now you must show hospitality to people who are not like you. The phrase hospitality to strangers, show hospitality to strangers, can be translated literally, love loving strangers. Now, a stranger, for the purpose of this discussion, is anyone who seems strange to you or to whom you seem strange. This could be someone you do not know or who does not know you, whose background, worldview, or lifestyle may seem strange to you. A stranger could also be someone you do know who is from a different nation of origin, race, or ethnicity, or someone from a different socioeconomic or educational status, or someone who has different political views or different, or different faith experience than you. A stranger, for the purpose of this discussion, discussion is someone who to you is strange in some way and to whom you are strange. Now here's an interesting dynamic. When we love the stranger, the stranger often becomes a messenger from God. He said, you know, you're going to show this love to strangers and you may find out you're entertaining an angel unaware. Part of my experience, it's impacted my life so powerfully over the past 29 years, is doing life with so many people who are so different from me has caused me to see many of you as angels, as messengers from God who have impacted my life in powerful ways. And what happens is when you love loving the stranger, often the stranger becomes a brother or sister. But sometimes it's easier to love the person who is strange to us, but outside the faith than it is to be in a new community with a stranger who now shares our faith. The stranger becomes a brother or sister, and now we're called to do life together in this one new humanity thing called the church. A part of what all of us know here at TLCC is that we could, we could find a church. Each of us could, every one of us could, where most of the people look like us, have similar backgrounds and experiences, think like us, vote like us, and so on. But we have chosen to love loving strangers. We have chosen to be a part of a church community that reflects something just gorgeous in the mind of God. We've chosen to do that. And with that come some unique challenges that we have to figure out if it's worth working through in order for us to sit at the table where there's no Jew or Greek or circumcised or uncircumcised or barbarian or Scythian or, you know, the whole thing. Here's the second thing. 
We do not judge each other about disputable matters. We do not judge each other about disputable matters. And let me take a couple minutes and set this up. To say a couple things I've said many times. So I like to talk about this idea that there are four orders of truth. The first are what we'll call indisputable matters. Indisputable matters are doctrines and morals that represent the essence of what it means to be a Christian. As it concerns doctrines, these are things which have been believed by the majority of Christians for all 2,000 years of Christianity. The, these indisputables are the result of 2,000 years of study and thought and consensus. And there is widespread agreement around a small set of things doctrinally that we would call indisputable matters. Those things are uh, almost all caught up in the great creeds of the Christian church. For instance, I, I just, you want to know what I mean by indisputable matters? I think I need to show you as it concerns doctrine. Let's just say the Apostles' Creed pretty much nails it. I believe in God the Father. Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, by which he didn't say the Roman Catholic Church, he says the Holy Catholic Church, Catholicism literally means the universal church. The Roman Catholic Church is a part of the Holy Catholic Church. You understand, Catholic simply means all believers everywhere, the church universal. So the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, amen. Why do I take the time to read that? Because I want you to understand that you that, that's an example. You start pulling away at any of that, and you end up with something that you would no longer call Christianity. Indisputable things. And then there are indisputable morals. And um, indisputable morals would be morals that are based in the teaching of Scripture from beginning to end, around which there really hasn't ever been much dispute. Now, in recent times, there's some dispute about some of these things, uh, and I, I would always challenge you when society wants to change something that's been believed by the vast majority of Christians for 2,000 years, you should be very, very careful. I'm not going to get into any of that right now except to say that over 2,000 years, there's been an understanding in Christian of certain basic morals that are indisputable. Let me give you an easy one. Murder. Thou shalt not kill. There's really not any argument about that, is there? And really the way it's supposed to be translated is thou, it's about the, the, the protect, it's, it's thou shalt not murder is really the, the, the way that it's stated. It's the idea that you don't take innocent life or you don't take life unjustly. No, no, not, not really any dispute about that, right? Adultery. I mean, from beginning to end, you make a covenant of marriage, you stay faithful in that marriage. This is a moral indisputable. I'm, I'm not teaching about those things. I'm getting to something, but it's going to take me a minute, and I want you to get a bigger idea what I mean when I talk about indisputable matters. Secondly, there are disputable matters. Disputable matters are areas where Christians and Christian churches who agree on the indisputables disagree. 
Here's one example of many I could offer to give you an idea of what I mean. So an indisputable Christian doctrine is that Jesus Christ is coming again, the second coming of Christ. Anybody who's a Christian, they believe in the second coming of Christ. If they don't believe in that, they should call their church Rotary Club or something because at some point you take away things and you no longer, there's Christianity, it means something. There's a body of belief around Christianity. But... But when and exactly how Jesus is coming is not clearly taught in Scripture, or at least can be interpreted a number of ways. The fact is, no one knows for sure exactly how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen. And by the way, if you hear people talking like they do know, stay away. All right? People sell a lot of books with their opinions about it, and it's fine as long as they say, this is my opinion. It's great, but it's a disputable matter, <laughs> okay? Again, I get sidetracked. So, so that's an example of a disputable matter. People of Christian faith who believe in the second coming of Christ have, have, have there are some different streams of thought about exactly what that's going to look like, Okay. And then there are also disputable matters in the area of ethics. Ethics are the practical application of indisputable morals, okay? Uh, uh, but but an, an example of that would be, there's, there's a great passage in Romans chapter 14. The whole chapter is about how Christians and Romans were having difficult, uh, uh, were, were having disagreement about what Paul called disputable matters. They were, here's the, here's what they were arguing about. They were arguing about whether or not they could drink wine. They were arguing about whether or not they could eat meat and they were arguing about holy days or holidays. Some people thought holidays should be experienced one way and some the other. Still hear a little bit of that today. But what Paul said is he said in Romans chapter 14, 1, accept those whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. So he was saying, essentially, those who have more liberty are considered to have greater faith, but that's okay if some people don't feel comfortable, you know, uh, having a glass of wine. It's fine. It's, it, don't, don't quarrel with each other about disputable matters. He's saying, essentially, keep the main thing the main thing and don't get caught up in all these other uh, inane arguments about you know, it could be guys in the Christian family, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things that we just ought not really focus on. And so one of our big things here at TLCC is we do not argue over disputable matters. We don't do it. At least not for long. And here's the third order of truth. It's church polity. Church polity is a particular church or denomination's policies and application of disputable matters, which is to say, you know, the church at large may have disagreement about this thing or that thing, but this is what we believe and teach here. And, and, and so if somebody becomes a part of a local church, they buy into that church's policy, even if they may have disagreement about the disputable matter. If you become a part of a church, you buy into the church's polity. You submit to it. That's just part of how things are. And then fourth, there's who knows. There's a consensus, thankfully, that there's some things that nobody really knows. An example of that would be who wrote Hebrews. For 2,000 years, nobody's really been able to answer that question. We don't know. I wish that we would spend more time in indisputable matters and who knows than all the rest of it, but nonetheless. Here are two examples of disputable matters and how we would work through these disputable matters as it concerns our relationships with one another, which is what's important to me today. That's what I want to talk about. So, everybody okay? Can you take a breath? 
Don't expect me to be done in my 40-minute target time. It's not going to happen. That's an indisputable matter, okay? I have some things to talk about today that I think you will appreciate. Whether you like it, well, I think that you will appreciate what, what, I, what I'm going to say. So let's talk about disputable matters. It concerns, first of all, doctrine. All right, a disputable matter in the Christian church at large is, has to do with baptismal modes. Indisputable, people are baptized. Disputable, different churches have decided to baptize different ways. I believe very strongly, and you've heard me teach, that, that I believe that believers should be baptized. People who've reached the age of accountability, make their own decision, confess their own faith, should be baptized by immersion. Our church polity is, that's what we do here, okay? But... Let's say, for instance, I mentioned Nathan Gossatur a few minutes ago, the Anglican bishop. Bishops don't baptize by immersion. I'm sorry, Anglicans don't baptize by immersion. At least that's my understanding. Uh, but they baptize infants. So they, they, that's what they believe. I think they're wrong. Okay? But it's a disputable matter. Let me tell you how, how I'd handle that. When, when I got involved with Nathan, Nathan Gossatur about Rwanda and the AIDS pandemic, I didn't say to him before I got involved, hey, how do you baptize people? Do you understand? Because I knew that we agreed about the indisputable things, and the main thing at that point was there are people dying from AIDS. So I'm not going to go and say to him, well, listen, wait just a minute. You put how much water on the baby's head? No way. We're done. We're not going to be in fellowship. You, you see how ridiculous that is? Well, I feel the same way about politics. As it concerns my relationship with other believers. So... You know, one of the things we have to decide when it comes to disputable matters is, is you, you, you have to figure this out. Do you think that God is a Democrat? Do you think God is a Republican? Do you think God is an independent? I think he is because I'm a registered independent, by the way. So I think probably God agrees with me. I'm kidding. I don't think God cares. Here's what I want you to see, believers, fellow believers, fellow believers. God is into something so much bigger than being a part of our political agenda. See, and so, and so I don't determine who my friends are or who I invite to speak or who we do plus life missions projects with or any number of other things based on their opinion about politics. I'm thinking about bigger things than that. Now, I want to talk about two examples of how people who agree on moral indisputables might disagree about what I'm calling disputable decisions. So two, let's, I'm going to talk about two hypothetical people, but representative of the kind of things that I hear regularly from both sides of the political Isle, particularly in an incredibly polarized climate in our country. I want to give you an example of how two people who agree on moral indisputables can make an entirely different decision about who they vote for when they get into the polling booth. And one of the things that I'm most concerned about right now, friends, is that we do not judge each other as it concerns a diversity of opinion about electoral politics. I don't want to hear one side effectively calling the other side barbarians. 
I don't want to hear that as your pastor. If I can just stand here in the authority, God-given authority of this pastorate, that I hopefully I've fulfilled my responsibilities well over the past 29 years. Hear my heart. This cannot be in a church like ours. What I want to hear is, here is a brother or sister who I disagree with, whose political leanings are strange to me, but nevertheless, I'm not going to judge them about this disputable matter because Christ is all and in all. And I do life with people who are strange to me. I've decided to do that. But I want us to get beyond just not judging. I'd like for us to also try to understand each other better. I'm going to give you an insight to the kind of thing I deal with all the time. I want to do this because I think it could contribute to our unity here at TLCC, and I'm going to take a little bit of risk to do it. But I, I want to give you an example of how one person might emphasize one moral indisputable and another might in, emphasize an, a, another moral indisputable, and they may make what we might call disputable decisions, decisions we would disagree with one to the other in this political climate. So let's say that, let's just dig into it. Let's say one's person's primary moral concern at this time is racial justice. Okay? Not their only concern, but it's their primary concern. I believe that Scripture is clear that true racial justice is an indisputable moral imperative. Scripture says, stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed. The word justice occurs 143 times in Scripture. This is clearly an issue that's in the forefront of God's mind. Racism occurs when a person of one race, particularly a minority race, is viewed or treated by a person or persons of another race, particularly the majority race, with prejudice, antagonism, or systemic oppression. I think that it's clear that our nation, as wonderful as it is in so many ways, is still wrestling with a 400-year legacy of racial injustice that began with, with uh, slavery and continued through reconstruction and segregation and the struggle for civil rights and more recent incidents like the George Floyd killing that have occurred before our very eyes. I like the definition of racial justice put forward by the AND campaign, which I referenced last week and recommended their book, Compassion and Conviction. They talk about racial justice in terms of, of, of redemptive justice. By the way, the book's written by, by three guys, two of whom are black, just so you'll know this is the definition that they offer. They, they say that redemptive justice is justice which has its ends in reconciliation, peace, and flourishing for all parties. From a Christian perspective, I appreciate thinking about racial justice in a way that leads to reconciliation, peace, and the flourishing of all parties. I don't believe there need to be winners and losers in the quest for racial justice. Racial justice is in the best interest of every one of us. Now, as I've said a number of times, and I've spoken about race, I'm not an expert on the subject of race. I'm not an expert on the subject of racial justice. But I do know that the term Christian racist is an oxymoron. In other words, there really is no such thing. 
And I do know that we must each work toward a, in other words, in case you don't understand the meaning of oxymoron, you can't be both. All right, you're one or the other. It can't be a Christian racist. Um, I do know this, that we must each work together toward a future that finds us standing before God's throne, singing this song together from the Revelation. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you have purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now, here's my larger point. If a Christian brother or sister views racial justice as their top moral concern, they will most likely vote overwhelmingly for a particular candidate and political party. This has been true for many years, and it'll be true in this election as well. This is not to say whether it should or shouldn't be this way. It is to say it is this way. Now, let's move to a moral issue that is of primary concern to many Christians as well. Let's talk for a minute about what is commonly referred to as pro-life. Let's say someone's primary moral concern at this time is protecting the lives of unborn children. There is a mass consensus among people of Orthodox Christian faith that life must be protected from conception until whenever God decides life should cease to exist. Job wrote, the spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. A particular emphasis is made in scripture on the sin of taking an innocent life at any stage of life. Proverbs says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, and one of them he mentions is hands that shed innocent blood. God hates hands that shed innocent blood, whether an unborn child in the womb or someone unjustly killed at the hands of governmental authority or any other way innocent life is taken. Now, I rarely discuss this issue. It's been years, years since I've discussed this issue, probably to my discredit. Why do I hesitate to discuss it? Well, I'll offer two reasons. First of all, I'm aware of the white elephant in the room, and I know that I am that white elephant. I'm a white person discussing race, and I'm a man discussing abortion. I do not claim to understand either the experience of a person in the minority in this nation, and I do not claim to even begin to know what it's like to be a woman who is pregnant with a child, unplanned and unwanted. But I hope that you'll receive my words as your pastor who is obligated to address great moral issues regardless how unqualified I may be to deal with them from personal experience. Here's the second reason I rarely talk about this particular subject. It's because it breaks my heart to think that my words on this subject would bring pain or condemnation to anyone who has participated in abortion in any way. And I want to remind all of us that when we ask him, Jesus forgives us of our sins, forgets our sins, heals us from the effects of our sins, brings new life. This is true for each of us, regardless any mistake we may have made in the eyes of God. We all desperately need his mercy 
God hates sin, but he loves us, and therefore he sent Jesus to save us from our sins, whatever they may be. We all need Jesus. That being said, many people of Christian faith are brokenhearted. Please understand that there are millions of, of, of that, 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 that there are many people of Christian faith who are brokenhearted at the 42 million abortions that occur across this world every year. That's 115,000 abortions a day. And more importantly, it breaks the heart of God who said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. Or God who inspired David to say, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, there's so much more that could be said about this. There's so much more that could be said about racial justice, obviously. But again, here's the larger point that I want to make today. If a Christian brother or sister views protecting the life of the unborn as their top moral concern, they will most likely vote overwhelmingly for a particular candidate and political party. And it will probably be the opposite candidate and party. I'm generalizing, but it'll probably be the opposite candidate and party of a Christian brother or sister whose primary concern is racial justice. This has been true for many years. It'll probably be true in this election. This is not to say whether it should or shouldn't be true. It is just to say it is this way. Hence the dilemma I face as the pastor of this church every day, particularly during election season. You have two sincere followers of Jesus, each of whom are motivated by indisputable moral issues who may make entirely different decisions about disputable matters, which in this case is who to vote for. Look, I know it's more complicated than just that, and I know that these issues are much more textured and layered than the way I've just addressed them. I do have a limit in the amount of time I'm able to speak. I tried to give equal weight, equal time, equal words to each of the issues I just d d discussed I, I, and, and I know it's complicated. I know some Christians, for instance, who are against abortion but think the choice should be left to a woman. I strongly disagree. I don't believe that Scripture teaches that anyone has the right to take innocent life. But here's the larger point. I still desperately love my brother or sister who holds that opinion. I also know that in every election, there are other important nuances, including the character of a candidate, the personality of a candidate, the leadership acumen of a candidate, and hundreds of other things. I know there are many, many things to sort out, but my point today is, I want you to see how a brother or sister may come to a different decision than you, and I want you to see that their decision, which may be different than yours, does not make them a barbarian. That's my greatest concern. And I also know, by the way, that, 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 that many of us, I, I would assume most of us, care deeply about both of these issues racial justice and protecting innocent life, but we may approach them differently. For instance, there are people who approach racial justice from a pro-life perspective. 
Guys, you have to imagine the kind of things I hear in my office from people coming from all kinds of different places. And I know there are people who approach racial justice from a pro-life perspective. For instance, a, an email I received from an African-American man th this last week. I'll just read a little bit of it just to give you a sense of the kind of things I hear from, from, from beautiful people who, 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 who are coming to a different conclusion than someone else who's also a beautiful person, both of whom are trying desperately to follow Jesus, hear his word, do the right thing, right? Here's here, many of us, high pastor, many of us find ourselves torn between the ideologies of the two political parties. On the one hand, we hate the practice of abortion and don't want any innocent lives lost. We are pro-life, yet we know that there are too many unplanned babies born to ill-prepared or unfit or abusive parents. So we also support more emphasis, expertise, and money focused on an improved foster care system, a less complex adoption system, and much more support for single working parents, including better family leave laws. That do more to that do more to protect the jobs of mothers and fathers who must care for their children and support themselves and their children. Can I ask you, just give me just one moment, okay? Thank you. And then he said, we want to put more focus on a whole host of issues. Somebody from the audience sent the keyboard player out here, didn't you, hoping that I would be done. And then he goes on to talk about a, a, a life and how, how it, it also, those principles need to be applied to racial justice. I'm not going to go into it. It's beautiful and well-written, and it causes me to say, well, here's how he closes. He says, in the current polarized two-party system, it seems that we are forced to choose which aspects of human life is most important to us. There's got to be a better way. And then on the other hand, there are people who approach the pro-life perspective from a racial uh, justice uh, 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 way of thinking. For instance, um, um, I, I'll just read, and, and, and by that I, I mean the disproportionate way the black community and black families have been impacted by abortion. So here's just a line from a, 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 an article by longtime Wall Street Journal columnist Jason Riley, a black man who is brokenhearted about the subject, who said, what's not in doubt is the outsized toll that abortion has taken on the black population post Roe versus Wade. In New York City, thousands more black babies are aborted than born alive each year. So there are some folks approaching the pro-life issue their hearts broken for the unborn black life. The most important thing is that we understand there are a lot of things going on in well-intentioned people's hearts and minds that may cause them to come to a different conclusion to you as they're thinking about Great moral issues in our time. And my biggest concern, I, I, I hope you hear, I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. I'm trying the best I can to be as neutral as I can be to make the larger point, which is so important to me as the pastor of this church. It's that we do not judge each other about what ultimately becomes a disputable matter, but that we keep the main thing the main thing. Christ is all and in all. And so, thank you. So here's the third thing, and I finish, and this is a good time now to do that. Here's the third thing. We practice the virtues of unity. So what am I talking about? 
I know it's been a long time since I introduced the thought, three practices that help us value unity and diversity at the Life Christian Church. So let's pick the text back up in Colossians. Colossians 3.11. Here, Paul says, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with, and now he mentions what are commonly called the virtues of unity. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive each other. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful in whatever you do, whether in word or deed, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I'll say three quick things about this, and then I'm finished. The three big themes right here are are love, grace, and peace. First of all, he says, you are loved, so put on love. This binds together all the other virtues in unity. Scott McKnight, in his beautiful commentary in Colossians, said the term love describes a person's rugged commitment to another person rugged commitment to another person. He writes, Paul is not yearning that these folks will simply have affection for each other. You may not feel warm and fuzzies toward me or toward someone else in the room right now who you think is strange in some ways in terms of the issues I've just just discussed. It's not about feeling affection. It's about committing themselves to one another as they all grow in Christ into a unity. It means rugged commitment to each other. Next, he says, he says, you've, he said, forgive. Let me find the text again. He says, forgive one another. Verse 13, if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Scott McKnight says that this term forgive actually should be translated grace. He essentially is saying this. He says, each of you have received grace. Show grace to each other. The idea being, this is huge for our Christian walk, guys. All of us were saved by God through his unmerited favor. None of us earned it. He didn't show up and do what he did because we earned it. All right? And and so Paul says, since you received unmerited favor, give unmerited favor to other people. Even if you look at them and you don't think they deserve it, you show grace. You've been forgiven, you forgive. He says, if there's any grievance, forgive each other. Guys, I want to especially say, with all the sincerity that I can possibly convey, if I have offended you today, if you feel aggrieved at me, please forgive me, okay? I'm trying my best. To do my job as a pastor who's decided to dig deeper and just say, I'm okay, you're okay, let's go on and we'll show back up in a few weeks and not be too upset at each other about this stuff. 
But I don't want to do that. I want us to have a rugged commitment to each other. I want us to forgive each other. There will be grievances. Listen, let's all do our best not to cause them. When you're posting on social media, you're posting in a way where, well, let's go to the next thing. He says, he says, you have received peace. So remember that as a member of the body of Christ, you have been called to make peace. Um, again, Scott McKnight uh, speaks beautifully about this when he says, scholars nuance what this means. Let the peace of Christ judge, umpire, or rule you. He says, the, 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 no, what, does he, what does he say? The text says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts and remember that you're part of one body. So the Colossians are to render decisions regarding behaviors on the basis of what furthers the peace of the one body. In making your decisions, in choosing between alternatives, in settling conflicts of will, a concern to preserve the inward and communal peace that Christ gave and gives should be your controlling principle. Everything we do, we should be asking the question, especially during this season, does this contribute to peace in the body of Christ? Is peace the governing factor that determines what I say or what I post or whatever? This is the spirit of Christianity. Guys, remember, the kingdoms of this world come and go. The kingdom of God in this new community, this new humanity thing called the church lasts forever. And trust me, our unity as the body of Christ is something that will outlive this election, not just for a few years. It'll outlive this election literally forever. This is what Christ died for. This is what Christ died for. Christ is all and is in all.